Before we jump into this episode, we'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we share this conversation. We pay our respects to the elders, past and present. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Hello and welcome back to the Stuck In Between podcast. My name is Romy. And I'm Sandan. Thanks for joining us. In this episode, we chat with renowned Bharatanatyam dancer, Christopher Gurusami. We had such a blast chatting with Chris about his intersectional experiences as an interracial, queer, full-time artist. We have no doubts that you'll love this one. Be sure to listen through to the end as Chris drops some gems. Not only do we learn about Chris's unique journey, we also learn about what it's like to study traditional dance professionally abroad and to explore the depth of storytelling told through by the Natyam. We're really keen to come back to unpack Bharatanatyam as an art form in greater depth in a future episode. Because while we often look at it as a prestigious medium, its origins actually have quite an oppressive history. But for now, on to today's episode. Alright, for the benefit of our listeners, we have quite a unique setup today. Romy wasn't able to make it in person, so we've got her big face sitting on my TV. And Chris and I are together here today. Romy, can you hear us all good? Yeah. Everything's coming through? All good. You guys are so lucky seeing my face on a screen, eye bags and all. Um, but no, <laughs> it's coming through all good. No problem. We're going to have fun without you. So I hope you don't have too much FOMO. <laughs> uh, well, Chris, thanks again for doing this. I had the privilege of watching you dance last Friday. And I have to share this with our audience because you were as sick as a dog. But you still soldiered on and decided to perform as much as your body would physically allow you to. Which I think I can speak on behalf of the crowd that night to say that we were really humbled by the passion and love and dedication you have for your art. You know, despite you being a shell of yourself, still going out and giving it your all and leaving it all out there on the stage. So genuinely, I think everyone was moved by that. And something else that you did that I really appreciate is that before you performed each piece, you explained what the piece was about, what it means mm. to you, what the message was, who you collaborated with. And I think for people like my brother and I who are in attendance, you know, we've been to a bunch of Bharatanatyam performances, but because we're not trained in the art, mm-hmm. we don't know the mudras, we don't know the music as well as many other people do. Doing things like that make such a formal art form so much more accessible. Yeah. And it just brought a different dimension and we could enjoy it so much more. So you doing that went a really long way. Mm. And uh, you mentioned a few things in all of that, which I would like to come back to a little bit later in the episode. But my first question is, as someone who loves self-deprecating humour, how did hearing all those compliments (laughs) and my reflection make you feel right now? It was great. I really enjoyed it. (laughs) I'm not awkward at all. I don't know where I should chime in and cut this guy off. That's so funny. Even not being in person, I could just see how awkward (laughs) you were. (laughs) Chris just sitting there listening to all of that. I think the worst thing about the performance last week was that after the program, they read out my bio while they made me stand on stage and I've never wanted to just like be swallowed <laughs> like Sita by the earth so quickly in my entire life. I just, it's so embarrassing. I can imagine because you have such a high standard for yourself as a performer, knowing that you're not performing at that level to get all those compliments after the show and feeling as sick as you were, I'm sure it would be quite uncomfortable for you. Honestly, I feel like that even when I'm not, sick i just don't Mm. like it because 
dancing for me is something that I grew up with. It's not something that makes me, in my family, it doesn't make me remarkably special. It's just a thing that I do. So when they read out your accolades, you're like, yeah, okay, but I still have to dance the program. Like you still have to do the thing. Right. And got to improve it. Like, yeah, they're nice and it's nice to be acknowledged or whatever. But the dancing is what matters. Mm. You have to be able to put all of that praise into substance. And that to yeah. me is what's really, really important is showing up on the day for the show. Yeah, yeah right. exactly. Um, I want to come back to your dance experience in a little bit, but I would love to know a little bit more about your childhood. So mm-hmm. Romy and I started stuck in between to explore that space of navigating two cultures. Mm-hmm. And for us, a lot of that stems from the environments that we're in. Mm-hmm. Whereas for you, having a white mum mm-hmm. and a brown father you're not only navigating the two worlds because of your surroundings, but that culture clash is also in your DNA. Mm-hmm. Tell us a bit about that growing up. I mean, growing up, I grew up in Perth in the early 90s, which was an experience in itself. It was before mm-hmm. the internet. Like, I vividly remember one day throwing a fit at Target and someone coming up to my mum and asking her if I was actually her child. Because wow. my mum really? is white, blue eyes. And so I don't look like my mom. Right. Mm. And I remember never acting up in the shops ever again because my mom was just so distraught. Oh. I mean, it is pretty traumatic for someone to come up to you and ask if your kid is your kid just yeah. because you don't yeah, look alike. Of but back then, Perth wasn't as multicultural as it is now. Mm-hmm. I remember being like one of four brown kids in school all the time. And that was just how it was. And it wasn't like Melbourne or Sydney where there were a lot more brown kids. Right. Like yeah. it was weird. I think. At home, my mum is incredibly brown for a white lady. She wears saris. She's Where does that stem from? Is that only after she married a South Asian or was that interested before that? Well, my mum actually learned Bharatanatyam for a long, long time. Wow. She was part of the reason why my ate, Srimati Jayalakshmi Raman, was moved from Singapore to Perth to set up a dance school. Like my mum wow. was really instrumental in that process. Right. And that was before my dad. What your mum She do doesn't that? know. She doesn't. She can't remember. Born and brought up in Australia. No, she was born and brought up in England, and she migrated to Australia about fifty years ago. She just wanted to learn Bharatanatyam for some reason, and that was before my dad. And it was through dance that she met my dad and wow. stuff like that. And she actually danced with me through a majority of her pregnancy. So if you want oh, your child to be that. a dancer go to dance class while you're pregnant. That is the golden advice because apparently this is what happens thereafter. (laughs) Um, So I guess to like lean into your brown side of your life, that was relatively easy because your mum was already so engrossed in it. I mean, to say that in contrast, I have a younger sister and she's very, very white. Mm. I think as brown as I am is as white as she is. And what was really, we're really, really lucky. Our parents just let us do whatever we wanted. Mm -hmm. We were allowed to be whoever we wanted. Like I had a box of dress ups and all kinds of stuff. And my mom and my dad just let me do whatever I wanted. Like I was never boxed into gender norms or whatever. Like my parents just let me do whatever. And I think that that allowed me to just go wherever I wanted to go and be who I wanted to be. And my sister to be completely independent of that. We're very similar, but we're very, very, very different. Yeah, that's so interesting how in one household, both kids can be so different. Mm. Do you know why or like how that came to be? Was it just because your parents just let you guys do what you wanted to do? You just kind of each adopted the parts of the culture that resonated with you? Yeah, probably. I think it was just that 
I had a lot of cousins who are around my age and my sister's four years younger than all of us. So I think she didn't right. grow up with brown cousins like I did. Mm. We were all very close. My sister didn't have that. Anna's, my sister's name is Anna and Anna, she's a beautiful girl and she's lovely. She just, I don't think ever had that desire to assimilate herself into brown kind of culture and she just it wasn't her thing and I think she's better off for it because I think Mm. she's happier you know she got married to an Irish guy his name is Simon King her name is now gone from Analakshmi Gurusami to Anna King Um, I'm really really lucky because I have very supportive parents as well like Mm. Anna would have been the most stunning Bharatanatyam dancer it just wasn't for her and luckily Mm. I think our parents just weren't like that where they weren't like well just go to dance class anyway Anna Mm. did tennis swimming netball any sport that you could throw her into she did and anything I could dance I did yeah Yeah. and I think that's nice right because it should just be whatever resonates with you as a kid and it's not like one culture is better than the other either so it's nice Mm -hmm. that you did have that freedom to adopt it because something that Seth and I have talked about in the past when talking about your childhood and being forced into doing certain like arts or instruments or dance or whatever Mm -hmm. if your heart's not in it you often start to resent it and you Mm. give up Mm -hmm. and you just go so far away from it because you just stop enjoying it. So I think it's probably better to not force in that sense because then you just let your children do what they're drawn to really, like from a natural standpoint. Yeah. Um, The other thing you mentioned before about how you were throwing a fit at the shopping center and someone thought that you weren't your mum's son. Did that hit you at that age that that was why? Like, were you very aware of the fact that you were mixed race? And I wanted Mm -hmm. to know what your experience was like with that. I don't know. It was weird because... Perth in the 90s was so wild mm. that I think I was just seen as brown. Right. Like the fact that it's an interracial marriage, et cetera, et cetera, was like, if anything, that was the easier thing. Well, Chris has a white mom mm. and thus it's okay. But I think that being brown back then was a lot more difficult. Mm. I think that what was wild was that throughout growing up in Australia, I really felt brown. Like when I was in high school, my nickname was Guru. Because there were like seven Christophers. So even my nickname was like a brown aligning name. And it wasn't until I moved to India where you think I would just be like one of the other brown people that everyone was like, you're so white. And I'm like, Mm. no, I'm not. And I had to be like, I'm not white. And people still will call me white. People don't understand that it is a lot to process being an interracial child. And there's a lot for you to unpack and a lot of yourself that you have to just innately understand and move on from so like I get really irritated when people say that I look white because I don't think I look white right I don't think I look brown either I just look like me and I look like an interracial person and I think it's really important for there to be visibility that we exist and like as in like it sounds so stupid but like I feel like it's just so much easier to compartmentalize people into one or the other and being a halfy is a real experience in itself you learn to compartmentalize Mm. so much so quickly like I'd have to go to my grandma's house and eat shepherd's pie that had very little salt in it (laughs) to going to my aunt's house and eating a full chetiar meal where you need gallons of water just to get through the rasam because there's so much chili yeah and like you just learn to compartmentalize each one for their own but it's just how I grew up Mm. Like I can't imagine growing up in a fully brown house or a fully white house. Yeah. I was lucky to have both. Yeah. I think that's why I'm so culturally inclined is because I grew up in both. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, like 
it's only when you're talking about it like this that you kind of start psychoanalyzing yeah, what yeah. happened. Yeah. That decision to move to India when you were 18, was that an easy one? Because, I mean, to move to a completely different country, to learn a traditional art form in a very disciplined way, while, you know, all your other peers were starting their lives in Australia and sharing experiences that you wouldn't have been able to have overseas. What was the process like to decide to take that leap? Was it a hard decision or was there something maybe deeper pulling you to that calling that might have made your choice easier? That's a lot of like romanticization. I think it was just the thing that I wanted to do. I just wanted to dance. That's yeah. it. Yeah. And my entire career was just that I wanted to dance and it was nothing more than that. Right. And even yeah. the career I've built for myself as a soloist is based on this idea of I just want to dance for as long as I can dance. Yeah. And that's it. I love that. Mm-hmm. It was actually my dad who was like, just try it. Mm. I was getting ready to do my adding term and then my dad was like, look, just try it. Even if you don't last, you're going to be a better dancer, even if you're there for a day, than you are today. Mm. And I think I constantly lived in this thing of, yeah, but I'm going to go home. I mean, I grew up a, a huge chunk. Like, I was in Chennai for 17 years. That's a huge chunk. Mm. I was there from when I was 18 till now, full time. Mm. That's your formative years, you know, while everyone, all of my friends were out drinking on the weekends, I was locked into a hostel practicing Bharatanatyam. It kind of shapes how you experience the rest of the world. In hostel, in Kalakshetra, it was a really difficult thing to kind of navigate. But after that, I think it got a little bit easier and it slowly, slowly, as you get into it, and as you start dancing more, and as you start understanding who you are via this form that you practice, you kind of get more and more aware of who you are as a person. It's it's, yeah. it's actually essential mm. for you to understand exactly who you are to take on the role of somebody else. Right. Like that's, that's really, 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 really important. Yeah. That's really interesting. I'm going to come back to that. Mm. That's so good. Speaking of the time that you spent in India and being part of the institution, you mentioned you went at the age of 18 and your early 20s is such a formative Mm -hmm. time in your life and you often want a lot of independence and freedom during that period at least from my experience as opposed to going back to an institution having to almost be as though you're back at school again I mean basically you were right what was that like in terms of forming your identity and who you were as an individual in all honesty i lived 17 years of mentally being ready to like move back to australia at the drop of a hat yeah especially during college i used to pack my bag every second day and then i'd just be like no no i'll just stay one more day and i got through seven years of college pretty much packing my bag every other day yeah i had like uncles that had bets for how long i'd last and like yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? It, it was from like 10 days to I think the longest anyone actually gave me was two years. And when I graduated, postgraduate after six years, I went around to every uncle and just took $100 out of their wallet because I was like, you owe me. <laughs> I was like, I lasted and I got a first class postgraduate <laughs> diploma. So like, sup. Yeah. That's so good. But I loved being in Chennai. I loved my time there. I loved college. I also hated it because right. I wanted to be normal. And I think that that was the thing is I wanted to be Australian and like it's interesting because now the debate's a little bit different, right? Mm. We're talking about how we navigated our way as who we are in Australia. But once you take yourself out of Australia, you just want to be Australian. 
in the most mm-hmm. like broad right. generic sense of the word that's what i wanted it wasn't my family or anything yeah. like that it was this sense of normalcy mm. when i had very little control college was very much a military kind of school you get told when to wake up you get right. told what to do you're fed the food they give you you're not really given a lot of freedom to what you want to do and thus i just wanted to rebel and be right white I guess for a lot. Right. How, how did that manifest while you were there? Did you do anything that might have been out of the norms of what you expected to do to try and feed Oh, yeah. That? I mean, the most soothing thing for me, which sounds so strange, was I used to listen to Nine Inch Nails wow. and a lot of really <laughs> angry music, but I'd be wearing a dance vesti and like a kurta. And I'd what have, a contrast. I, but that contrast was what I needed. Beyonce yeah. and all of those kinds of singers are really empowering and they're the things I listen to before a show mm. because when I was through college and when I needed to have this, this is before the internet. This is before WhatsApp. This is before, Mm -hmm. like, the world became accessible. Mm -hmm. At that time, in that place, it was the only thing I could do to get solace in my own way that no one else could kind of permeate. I was in my own little world. I also used to read a lot, which just let me have that space that Mm. I couldn't find in the setting of this Mm. institution. I mean... To add to it, we also had no hot water, we had no air conditioning, we had no refrigerator, we had no washing machines. Did you know no that internet. all going into it? See, you can theoretically know all of this. It isn't until you actually realise that you have to wash at least 10 veshtis every weekend by hand without a washing machine that you realise yeah. what you've actually got yourself right. into. Um, yeah, growing up in your 20s in that kind of atmosphere it galvanizes you in a way that's really, really extreme. I find that I'm very protective of myself. I had my guard up a lot during college because that was Mm -hmm. how you had to kind of go through that institution. It is a very difficult thing. You're taught to be analytical, whereas most Indian kids are not taught to be analytical. They're taught to rote learn. They're Uh, taught this is a page of information. You learn that page. And when I would ask questions, my teachers would get angry at me and I'm going, but I'm just like, but it doesn't make sense. Right. Yeah. And there's a lot of mm-hmm. like when you have to trust authority and that sort of gap is a lot more pertinent in countries like India as opposed to Australia. So that would have been a big contrast for you being mm-hmm. brought up here in what seems like a really liberal mm-hmm. household to then being in that kind of atmosphere. I mean, we got locked into the hostel, I think, at 6.30 every evening, which I thought was hilarious, seeing that I had no curfew as a teenager. Um, The only way to describe it is the most extra experience of my life. Mm. Like, you would just be staring at the wardens going, (laughs) what? You think that makes sense? (laughs) Like, it was weird. But again, I was really lucky. So while I was at Kalakshetra, I was there during Leela Sampson's tenure. Mm -hmm. She was very liberal-minded. So it was quite interesting because our director was liberal and we just lived in the setting of quite close-minded people. Mm. And she was constantly fighting for the students. Right. But it was just wild. And I think the only reason I could get through a career in Chennai was because of those six or seven years right. of just yeah. pure discipline. what that was, how hard it was, how much is expected. Yeah. yeah, The discipline, how they discipline you, the mental mind games. There's all kinds of stuff that was happening at the same right. time as going to the institution. Um, because you have no TV, you're also living this serial that is just your everyday-to-day <laughs> life. Like someone <laughs> didn't speak to someone 
and all 200 of us knew all the drama all the time because right. there was nothing else for us to do. Yeah. So that was entertainment. Right. We lived for those moments. Yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> that's so good. I'm curious to know, if you ever have children one day, if you choose to, would you ever send them to this institution? Or if they wanted to Absolutely go, not. would you encourage no. them? No. If they wanted to go, you would say, no, don't do it? I really, really don't think I would ever put someone through that experience mm. unless they really really wanted to do it I would just say no yeah because as much as I was complaining about not having access to the outside world I actually think that that was the only way to do it was not being able to know what was going on in Perth all the time and not have that FOMO whereas I can't imagine going through that experience with Instagram seeing what everybody else is doing every five minutes yeah, I can't true. imagine going through right institutional learning at the same time right but no yeah. i would not send my child to kalakshetra whatsoever mm, that makes sense a lot of my cousins now nieces and nephews sorry are learning hip-hop because mm-hmm. yeah that's what they want to do yeah and and everyone's like i'm so sorry they're not coming for class i'm like i would rather them do what they want to yeah. do sure. than have to like trudge them through the mud doing mm. something that mm. they would never want to do in their like wildest dreams yeah so i tell people that all the time Bharatanatyam isn't for everyone and mm. that's okay. Mm. And if you're learning it right now and you don't like it, stop. Yeah. Tell your parents. Like, yeah, find your thing. Find your thing. Mm. My thing is Bharatanatyam. It definitely doesn't mean it's everyone's. Yeah. yeah. My favourite subject in school was English. And something I was reflecting on recently was, at least the way my year 11, 12 teacher taught it, we weren't really looking at English as a language, but we were being taught how to think critically about art. Mm-hmm. And when you were explaining the pieces the other night in your performance, I think you brought out a lot of the themes that you think about and process. And my mom's a trained by the Natim dancer, so we were talking about it afterwards because she was in attendance as well. And we're talking about how a lot of the things that you brought up are things that people who think about Bharatanatyam or practice Bharatanatyam in a very rigid way, it would never cross their minds. Mm-hmm. So there's a few things there that I'd love to unpack with you. Before that, what does Bharatanatyam mean to you? Because when you performed that day, being as sick as you were, I don't think anyone would have done that if they didn't have this real deep-rooted love and care for this art. I mean, it's a love-hate relationship. I love it because it's all I've ever really known. Mm -hmm. It sounds really like the, but it is the backbone of my entire life. And Everything I do, I think, revolves around dance. So every experience I live, everything I do every day, I will be thinking about dancing. It's Mm. not something that I plan to do. It's not something that I'm going out of my way to make sure that I'm doing. It's just how my brain now is wired. Mm. I live my life through my form. I found, and that's how I kind of unpacked this entire experience of college, We were taught in a very rigid manner. We were taught the same, we call it hands, so the use of hand gesture to tell a story. We're taught the exact hands that somebody else that went to the college would have learnt the exact same hands 20, 30, 40, 70 years ago. They don't Mm. change. So when it's structured like that, if you're an analytical person, your immediate response to that is, but why? Mm. And we were told, don't ask questions, Mm. just Just do do it. So I think that that was the first thing was to kind of fall in love with the form again after college and really want to try and make something of it was to ask those questions. And there wasn't really anyone to ask besides myself. Mm. So it was really engaging with it myself 
and figuring out who I was with this really complex form that has a really complex history. It's not an ancient form. That is yeah. a very, very big discussion. So you have all of these misconceptions around this thing. I guess the one thing that you have to constantly ask is how do you make that form yours? Mm. So I think that what does Bharatanatyam mean to me is, I don't know, I can't really put it in words because it means too much. Mm. It's something that consumes every facet of my life. And I think that I'm a dancer through and through. That's the only way to describe it. It is just everything. Yeah, I love that. And I think you're right because I think a lot of us look at Bharatanatyam as an ancient art form, but realistically it's only been around for less than 100 years, right? Mm -hmm. But we treat it like it's this thing that can only be done in this certain way. Mm -hmm. And like you said, when people challenge it, there's all this backlash. Mm -hmm. One of the things that you brought up the other night, which never crossed my mind until you brought it up, was there was a piece about a female character Mm -hmm. written from a man's perspective. Mm -hmm. So a man is talking about the emotions and the love that a woman would feel Mm -hmm. without having that experience to tell that story. Mm -hmm. When you go through that process of challenging these things, what is the response like amongst the artistic community? That's a really complex question because first you have to understand your positionality in the form that you're talking about. As a cisgendered male... What do I have to go through to get myself to the point where I can stand on stage as a female character and convince a room that you are that character mm. without adorning the like thing of a woman? What is it to have that spirit of that character that you can instantly turn into? Mm. Yeah. What does it really mean? How do you shed yourself to stand in that spot, to step into those shoes but do it in a way that's respectful, that you're not being stereotypical, that you have to embody it so much that you're yourself at the same time you're not yourself. I think being queer, for me, makes it much easier to navigate that, Mm. especially as a brown queer person. You have to navigate and understand who you are so thoroughly just to be who you want to be. Right. That then... You've understood who you are to be able to shed that of yourself and stand there neutrally to take on that character of that persona. Thereafter, once you start entering the realm of dual characters or three characters Mm. within one composition, there are some times where you have to change from the friend to the main Naika, which is the woman, to the man who said something to her and then swap back to any one of them in the space of eight beats. Right. Mm. And that swapping is all to do with breath, how you understand the voice that's going on inside your head. There's so many things. I think what's beautiful about a lot of the poetry is that even your spiritual practice becomes really interesting because the deities that people pray to every morning are people that you have conversations with on the daily. Mm. Mm -hmm. So like you have to unpack all of that. After you've unpacked that, then you realize that a man has written this narrative and that that's questionable. And then what I did the other week at Kamban Karagam was getting a female writer to write a male narrative. Right. I don't think that many people understand how insane that is, Mm. but it is Mm. just Mm. because it doesn't happen. Yeah. Like, I don't think a lot of non-dancers understand how exciting that is. I don't think you think about the person that's composing the music. But when you do put all of that into perspective, you're going, right, that is actually pretty wild. Yeah, Yeah, that makes sense. Even if you think of it from the perspective of 
workplace laws and all of the women's rights issues that we always talk about, right? And this is something that came to mind, such a random tangent, but I promise I'm going somewhere with this. That's where you really think of the fact that this was all written by men for women. So Mm -hmm. I do Mm -hmm. hear what you're saying when that aspect comes into the arts as well, which is something that I never thought about because I myself am not immersed in the arts. But the fact that these old texts, for example, were written by men. And a lot of these compositions, like you said, were done by men before. And then having to adapt that and also carry it out from a female's perspective, that's such an interesting thing to grapple with. I was so immersed in everything that you were saying before. You put that so well. But how much, I mean, I'm sure it's still a work in progress and it's something you're always wanting to develop, but how much work did it take for you to really start grappling with that and make this art form your own? So I did seven years of Kalakshetra. After I finished Kalakshetra, I worked with Leela Sampson. She was the director of the college that I went to. I worked in her dance company afterwards for five years. And during that five years, I never choreographed any of my own work. I started performing solos in Chennai, things I had learned in college or things I was learning from my teacher, Srimati Bragabesal or Leela Sampson or my friend Rakesh. So I was doing these other people's compositions. Mm-hmm. And what that kind of gave me was five years of just learning and was five years of really, really, really intense learning and learning how to take other people's voices and turn them into my own. Right. That was mm-hmm. a really, really key element. I think a lot of people think that they have this structure and they're able to work with it straight away and they should choreograph straight away. I took a good solid six years before I even started working on my own stuff. So when I started choreographing my own pieces, I think I had a really solid foundational learning. So I think as well over that five years was really understanding who I was. I used to think that because I had, as a Bharatanatyam dancer, Christopher Gurusami is the most bizarre but it's an acting dancer name that I think has ever existed. Everyone's like, what? Why is his name Christopher? But grappling with all of that happened, I would say, around six, seven, eight years ago. It was really when I understood that there was so much power in being Australian and brown and white and all of these things together and that they could be funneled through my form mm. that I think that things really started to Unlock. change and evolve and the more I let my guard down the more my audience responded very positively right. which made me just want to tear it down more which is why I feel like when I go on stage I try to be as authentic in the moment with as few guards up as I possibly can mm. and I've learned this from RuPaul's Drag Race mm-hmm. that the more authentic you are and the more real and the more you try to just be who you are in that moment the more people respond to that yeah for sure. and that authenticity is so much more valuable your authenticity is the most valuable thing that you as a person as a commodity have how you funnel that into whatever you're doing is what makes it good in my opinion like authenticity is so 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 undervalued especially i think in brown context Mm. authenticity is something we're always told like i was the whole through college don't ask questions shut up children should be seen not heard 
you kind of bundle that stuff up. And it's only when you get older and you kind of let it all out that you understand how important it is to be authentic. Yeah, mm. for sure. And I think that really shone through in your performance last week, right? Because, I mean, you were transparent about how you were sick. Yeah. But then you were also performing and explaining what everything meant to you in the context of that performance. And I think that made it so much more of a personal connection and we could see everything that you were pouring out. Um, one thing with that transparency is that you spoke about within each piece a certain line that really resonated with you and you could tell that a lot of thought went into that just one line (laughs) you were researching you were thinking about different perspectives and connecting it in different ways and understanding how it might resonate with different characters and different people in different ways what's that creative process like for you I have this really weird thing where a lot of the pieces that I love the most are pieces that I hated initially or had something that I really disliked about it right And my thing was always to figure out why I didn't like it. So if I take up a Varnam, which is a big main composition that we do, I've done a lot of Varnams and my friends will quote me on this. I've gone, oh God, if I watch that girl do that Varnam again. And then the next year I'll do it because I've gone, okay, well, why don't I like it? Then I read it and then I'm like, oh no, it's not that bad. And then as I'm reading it, because I'm only half thinking about it, like an idea will pop in my head. I'm like, what if I did this? And then slowly, 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 slowly I start exploring and writing a lot of my process is writing so I have about 50 million notebooks on the go at any time it is about writing it's about discussing I'm really really lucky I have a wonderful teacher called Srimati Bragabessel I go to her with the craziest ideas and she never ever goes no it's always like okay we'll see Mm. and I will inevitably turn her onto the idea and then we both will be like we have to figure out how to do it Mm. um I think having a teacher like that, that allows you to explore as much as you want, is the world's biggest blessing. But it's been years of her going, listen to what I'm telling you to do and just do exactly what I say to this relationship where now I'll call her and be like, hi, teacher, I had this crazy idea of this character who we've never heard of before. And she'll be like, great, cool, bring me all of the text. And then we will sit and figure out how we could unpack it or repack it or If it's just not working, understanding that those no's or this isn't working isn't about me. It's not about my ideas. It's just about the work. And I think that that's really important as well is understanding that it is a job. A Bharatanatyam is a full-time occupation. It requires that level of work and that for the good of the show, sometimes you have to let go of stuff and that's not an ego thing. It's just this is not the show to do that. Yeah, yeah. But we'll workshop it. Maybe next show it'll work. Yeah, That's the right. kind of process that I follow. Got you. Mm. We've spoken about this a million times on a podcast about how we're so often taught about all these really rich stories from our culture in a very black or white way. Like all these characters mm. are good or evil. Mm-hmm. But then we don't take that time to kind of unpack all the depths in those key plot points. And something that Romy and I are starting to appreciate now as adults and running this podcast and exploring these things is that like what you did in the performance last week, you can take one scene from this epic story, this one minor scene, and there's so much to unpack in Mm -hmm. the depth, in the characters, in the themes, in the emotions. And I think being able to appreciate that now is so powerful for us to connect with that culture as well. 
in terms of all of that, what types of stories do you enjoy performing and exploring the most? Oh, it depends on what day it is. Yeah. Like there are pieces mm. that I do a lot that I'm like, oh, I love this. Like I said that day, um, there's a piece that I do called Jagudo Darana, which is a very epic Carnatic music song. I learned it when I was, I think, 19, hated it. Mm-hmm. It was about playing with a baby, had nothing to do with it, didn't want to yeah. do it. It wasn't until my sister had her first kid and I played with him that I was like, oh, no, 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 I get this. Like, right. I understand this character now. Oh. Right. And now it's a piece that I do all the time because yeah. I understand what it is to play with mm. that baby. And, mm. you know, so the idea of the line is it says... <laughs> The one who protects the entire universe. How does she not know that she's playing with this giant universal lord? Mm. Like, and the poet's just watching Yashoda play with Krishna going, how does she not know that she has the universe in her very hands? And it wasn't until I picked up my nephew that I understood that kids are basically the closest thing you have to touching God. They have... Wow nothing there is no, they they're not marked by society they don't know yeah. what good or bad is they're so pure and if i feel like that about my nephew seriously what would it be like to imagine baby krishna running around causing havoc in this house you mm. know a lot of people don't understand how what relevance classical Bharatanatyam has to -to day-to-day life. Mm. Mm. There are, like, songs that I reckon if Beyonce found out about, like, she's all (laughs) up in it. Like, there's a song that goes, there's a courtesan who has been taken into the harem of the king. So she's now one of the king's women. But she says, people are gossiping about her. And she goes, if I love him and he loves me, what's it to you? What Mm. difference does it make to you if I'm in a relationship with him? You think I'm going to be scared of you? You think I'm going to live in fear because of you? Like, you know, we just finished World Pride. That is exactly what World Pride is. I love him. He loves me. Who are you to say something about Mm. that? Mm. When you recontextualize stuff, there is so much in Bharatanatyam for you to explore that is so relevant to today. Yeah, Mm. You might not understand how these love poems are relevant to you, but when you're in those situations, when you have those kinds of emotions towards someone saying things like this love that I have inside of me, I can't hold anymore. How do you do it? Because my friend, you're better at faking it than I am. Or I just performed at the music Academy, which is this huge thing that happens every year. I did this piece where this woman just says, he's gotten tired of me. I don't know what I've done. I don't know why it's happened, but someone that loved me so dearly has just decided that I'm not the one anymore. And that kind of loss, I've never experienced it, but being able to sit in that character for 15 minutes was really enjoyable because Mm. you're experiencing life through a lot of other people's experiences, whether they're real or not real. Mm. And sometimes when you are these characters, it's like, you know, when you read a book and you want to reread it for the first time, right? Mm-hmm. Doing your pieces over and over and over and right. over again is like rereading your favorite book over and over and over again. Because the more you go into the character, the more you realize that you can do that little bit more. You can sustain that character that 30 seconds more, but that 30 seconds will feel like a lifetime. Right. right. It's just so interesting. Yeah. Once you start pulling apart composition and to be Christopher Gurusami in this body with my history and all of that, to get into those things, I believe, and I call it the key, I have to figure out 
how to get the key and put it in the composition, which is the lock. Mm. Like mm. actors say they have a phrase that they use to get into that character. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Like all that payada, which is the piece I did at Academy, my teacher just kept saying ranam, which is apparently like a wound mm. that you've opened up yourself, right. is ranam. So all I needed to do when I was walking onto stage was go ranam, 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 ranam. I don't even know if right. I was saying it correctly, but just this ah kind of sound is all I needed to unlock that character. And as soon as I sat down, I can go bang. And I can feel that I'm there because that's my lock for that key. Yeah, It's all about practicing. It's about doing the piece a billion times over mm. so that you can unlock those pieces as you need them as quickly as you can. Yeah. And what was yeah. difficult about that show is I felt like I was fuddling for the key. Right. That's what it was like. That program was like just playing on the wrong hand or something. I mean, hearing your explanations and things like this makes me connect to the art form so much more. And I think getting that context is so helpful because when I, as someone who's not trained by the art team, just watch a show, I'm not able to connect these dots the way that you're explaining it. So I appreciate you sharing all that. But the thing about dance is that you actually really don't have to understand mm. it. There's only two criteria. Is it beautiful and does it move you? Right. You don't have to understand mm. every moment of every section. But if you feel moved or you feel like you empathize with the dancer on stage that's it mm. that's the game the game right. is not to be over intellectual right. the game is to make everybody in that room feel the feel same something. way yeah. you want them to feel mm. my job is not to experience my job is to create an experience for yeah. you yeah you don't have to understand gesture you don't have to understand ragam you don't have to understand anything for that to happen that's the whole Rasa theory of the Natya Shastra is exactly that, is to create an experience for your audience. And right. that does not mean you need to know what's happening. Mm. It just means you have to be present in the moment to experience what the performer is trying to give you. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. So not understanding Bharatanatyam, to me, isn't a reason not to watch it. Right. Mm. If you feel like you're watching something beautiful or just something that moves you, that's it. That's it. It's magic. Yeah. And that's yeah. the beauty of the form yeah and all of our indian classical forms are the same i love that mm. when you're on stage what goes through your head Amazing. are you hyper conscious of what you're doing or do you kind of just switch off your brain your body takes over and you're moving both yeah yeah like sometimes there's a piece where there'll be a huge crying climax for example mm. you have to understand your body enough that you can make it look like you're crying but you've already switched off and you moved on to the next part. Right. So it's a lot of muscle memory. It's a lot of practicing body conversations so that you're not experiencing the moment. Right. You are literally just somewhere between experiencing and giving. Mm -hmm. It's this weird buoyant place in between those two emotions. Mm. And that's important. Mm. The experience of the whole thing outweighs the hand gestures. It outweighs... Right. The costume, all of that stuff is so, so superfluous. When you really are watching it, it's just about being in the moment. And that's what Bharatanatyam is, I think. Yeah, well. And that's when you're watching good, good Bharatanatyam. Right. Mm. There are moments where I've watched great dancers and there's this minute or 30 seconds of such clarity of thought that you can feel that the entire room is with is you, with you mm. or with them or... You can feel it in that moment yeah. that something as small as looking up will have an effect wow. that no hand gesture will ever have. Mm. Yeah. As a dancer, that's what you live for. Yeah, wow. mm. I love that. One of the other 
pieces and you mentioned this before is also being a queer man and how that identity sits into you being a Bharatanatyam dancer as well. How has that affected people's view of you, particularly in India itself, if that's ever something that had to come up or even as just being like a male dancer in and of itself is something that's less common, I suppose, but then your queer identity on top of that? Nah, honestly, boys are taking over Bharatanatyam like there is no tomorrow. Nice. There are yeah. so yeah. many of us right now. Yeah. And it's amazing. And it's because awesome. it's push not from us but we're lucky we're just the people that are riding this great wave that a lot of mm. like cv chandrasekhar said then and sir janathan and sir they all really paved the path that we're all just happily walking on right now male bhartanatyam dancers are not a dime a dozen anymore there's a lot of us and we're all making space and making work I kind of personally feel like I did that whole I'm queer, I'm here kind of thing when I was younger. It doesn't really factor into my work that much anymore. I think everyone has an artistic phase where you go through it. I've gone through mine. It's mm-hmm. a part of who I am. It doesn't define who I am as a person. It's just a normal thing for me. And thus it doesn't really now pay a huge part in what work I'm creating but I do think that it's interesting when I have to play a male character, it's actually a little bit more difficult than playing a female character. Because mm. I'm thinking about a girl and how weird is that? Like as a male character, when I was younger, having oh, to think about a female character or something like that, it's another bridge to build. Oh, okay. Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I'm yeah, yeah, a yeah, female yeah, yeah, character yeah. describing a male, I'm like, yeah, that's what right, I like. Yep, yep, yeah, 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 but yeah. if I'm yep. a male thinking as a queer person, then swapping that over to think as a straight person. Like, it's a lot. Yeah, like, that's, that's a lot. actually a lot harder than just, like, the straight Varnam. Mm. Yeah. Because it's not just gender. It's also, yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. Wow. That is so interesting. There's so many aspects to this. And something that I love that you mentioned before is also we talk about how a lot of these, you know, texts and stuff they really do resonate and if you start to unpack a lot of this, they really do make sense in our life as it is today in the modern world. But then also the fact that you've been exposed to these art forms also helps you make those connections as well and Mm -hmm. make you further get deeper in your art form. For example, you not resonating with the piece about carrying the baby and then you carried your your niece or nephew it was and then it started resonating with you. And yeah. it, I love that that helped make that piece click for you because it's really like a two-way thing, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's a way of immersing yourself into the culture so much and aspects of religion and everything also – do you feel like you have to subscribe to a lot of the culture because of it? Or do you still feel like you have agency to take what is relevant to you and what resonates with you? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, it's interesting. I think that how Bharatanatyam is performed in India and in Chennai is quite different to how the little bit that I've seen in Australia. Right. So we use myth in a very different way to how it's done here. I feel, where the exploration is of the story. We use the story as an example. So it's like when you write an essay and you're like, the paragraph says that the character was going to leave and then you put the characters like, I'm leaving now. And then after that, there's your Mm. stuff, right? That's what we do. So The interpretation of that. Yeah. So I'll use a religious story to contextualise what I'm saying. Mm. But it doesn't Mm. make 
it's just to let go. You know this idea. I'm going to take that idea and explore it in a way that you might mm. not. Right. So we're yep. constantly using these stories as reference points versus the entire thing. Right. right. Does that make sense? Yeah, okay. yeah. But in terms of how those stories are told here. What I've noticed of the little bit I've watched is that the whole story would be that story of... Yeah, as it is. so it's more the, it the literal story. The literal yeah. story, yeah. 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 Whereas yeah. because I think in India we have so many stories and it's such an oral tradition and you're listening to that and you're so submerged into it that you can reference these things much quicker. So we might reference mm. things much, much, much faster. Our audience is also watching so much Bharatanatyam that they understand that the ta-ta-ta with a kick is a reference right. to that story. Oh, so you can move okay. through things so much yeah. quicker. That makes sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that makes so that's how sense. we use myth there. It's just to make sense of what the idea we're trying to explore. Yeah. It's not yep. necessarily that the myth is the whole thing. In that, like, you mm. can make it funny. You can be sarcastic. You can add in an element or a shade of something else that makes that even more context and subtext to what you're trying to say. Yeah. Mm. A lot of Bharatanatyam is subtext context and then recontextualizing that content to make a point right right mm. and all you're trying to do in your program is make point after point after point after point that make one giant point yeah that's mm-hmm. literally yeah. Bharatanatyam. yeah while running on a treadmill and smiling in a sari that's all <laughs> doesn't ask a lot it's not a lot yeah. it's just that it's very chill very chill the, there's so much power <laughs> and so much beauty in the storytelling which I wish someone explained to me when I was much younger. Mm. And so I just love this conversation. I think there's some people that we connect with on our podcast where you and I have had two five-minute conversations, yeah. but it feels like I've known you for years. <laughs> and I feel like there's a few people we've been able to interact with like that, and you're definitely one of them. I have so many more questions to ask, but like we need to wrap it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, We really appreciate you taking <laughs> the time, and we'll put up all your deets on our Instagram so people can follow along and maybe even come attend a show. And yeah, looking forward to seeing wherever the next chapter of dance takes you. Yeah, yeah. thank you so much. No, Seriously, no, no. we could have talked for like another hour at least. This so was we amazing. really appreciate your time. <laughs> oh, thank you. No, this was so much fun. I'm so excited. This is the first time I've actually done an interview for something that I actually listen to. <laughs> <laughs> Normally it's something that I don't actually it's like. Very meta. How was that experience? It's pretty <laughs> crazy because it's like I've met you, but I've not met Rami. And so it's like weird because I know your voice much better than I know you so it's just like really weird to like (laughs) recontext you you guys are recontextualizing there we go go. it's come full circle you're basically Bharatanatyam artists yeah yeah Yeah, well we hope we gave you a good experience it was amazing thanks for coming on again thank you thank you thanks so much for joining us we learned so much in that episode Do follow Chris on Instagram to keep up to date with all of his projects. Details are in the show notes. As a side note, our drinking game and conversations game are selling out quick. Head over to stuckinbetween.com for 25% off now. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at stuckinbetween underscore podcast. Until then, we'll see you next time. Bye.